Welcome to Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase. I'm Matthew Anderson. During this time of limited travel, a lot of us are sticking close to home and missing the long-distance trails we love. Maybe your hiking boots, like mine, are looking pretty forlorn these days. If you, like me, love to walk, there are lots of virtual pilgrimages you can do right where you are. As for me, I've been walking up and down my staircase. While I do, I think about the folks I've met and the paths I've walked. I'd like to share some of those with you. In this episode of Pilgrimage Stories, we're back in the Scottish Borders region. The St. Cuthbert Way runs through the borders from Melrose, Scotland to Lindisfarne, England, also known as Holy Island. I walked this trail over a four-day stretch of an unusually hot July some years ago. Although a lot of my audio and videotape from that trip were destroyed when my hard drive cracked, I'm really glad a few interviews at least survived, especially this one. My name is Kate Tristram. <laughs> I'm the associate priest of the, of the parish, that is the vicar's assistant in the parish. And we are here sitting in the Lindisfarne Centre. Uh, I have been on the island for 35 years. I, for the, my first 20 years here, I was the warden of Mary Gatehouse, which was a small retreat and conference centre. And at that particular time, also, gradually, via being, first of all, a deaconess, and then a deacon, then a priest, I was ordained and, um, and was, for a good many years, the curate of the parish. Uh, and you're an academic and a historian uh, as well. He, well, yes. Kate Tristram has a long history with history. She studied it at Oxford did an MA in theology, and became the head of theology at St. Hilda's College, Durham. It was over 40 years ago now that she moved to Holy Island, becoming the curate of St. Mary's Church on the island and one of the first woman priests in the Church of England. In the year 2000, at the age of 69, Kate enrolled in Edinburgh University and obtained her Master of Science in Medieval Language and Text. In her late 70s, she wrote two books, the Story of Holy Island by Canterbury Press, and Columbanus, The Earliest Voice of Christian Ireland, published by Columba Press. And I had to choose two medieval languages, so I chose medieval Latin and Old Irish, huh. because these were the languages of our original monks here um, in the first monastery here, St. Aidan's Monastery, and I thought if I knew their languages, it might help my understanding of their whole way of being and their whole way of thought. The day after I arrived, weary and footsore on Holy Island, I was wandering around with my camera when I was told I absolutely had to meet and to speak with Kate Tristram if I wanted to know anything about the place. At very nearly 90 years old now, Tristram remains the acknowledged expert on the history of Holy Island. She is presently working on her third book about the historic hermits of the Farne Islands near Lindisfarne. I caught up with her in the back room of the local museum. 
So tell me uh, something about, uh, quickly about St. Cuthbert, and uh, I know that you know a million things about him, but just, uh, you know, for somebody like myself who, who comes into on pilgrimage and wants to know something about Cuthbert, what would you say? Uh, the, I would say that the thing about St. Cuthbert which made him, so to speak, famous was that he was exactly the sort of saint that the early medieval imagination wanted a saint to be. Unlike St. Aidan, who was a little bit more modern in that he undertook a job and beavered at it until he died, St. Cuthbert was an exciting man who had what they called spiritual gifts. He had the gift of um, converse with angels, the gift of prophecy, the gift of second sight, the gift of spiritual healing, and finally, the rather romantic thing of going away and being a holy hermit, which in those days they thought was the absolute height of Christian vocation. So he did everything. Uh, he was indubitably a very good and holy man. There's no doubt about that. But he did all the right things, so to speak, to become a saint and an object of cult. Like Kate Tristram says, Cuthbert was every inch the perfect medieval saint. Here's how the Venerable Bede described Cuthbert's very intimate relationship with the rest of the natural world. While the others were asleep, the saint would go forth, and having spent the night in watchfulness, return home at the hour of morning prayer. Now one night, a brother of the monastery, seeing him go out alone, followed him privately to see what he should do. But he, when he left the monastery, went down to the water which flows beneath, and going into it until the water reached his neck and arms, spent the night in praising God. When the dawn of day approached, he came out of the water and falling on his knees, began to pray again. Whilst he was doing this, two otters came up from the sea, and lying down before him on the sand, breathed upon his feet and wiped them with their hair. After which, having received his blessing, they returned to their native element. Cuthbert himself returned home in time to join in the accustomed hymns with the other brethren. The brother, who waited for him on the heights, was so terrified that he could hardly reach home. And early in the morning, he came and fell at his feet, asking his pardon, for he did not doubt that Cuthbert was fully acquainted with all that had taken place. To whom Cuthbert replied, What is the matter, my brother? What have you done? Did you follow me to see what I was about to do? I forgive you for it on one condition, that you tell it to nobody before my death. <laughs> and uh, and a kind of a Celtic symbol in that sense too, right? Of this idea of Celtic Christianity. Uh, well, I'm you. I'm careful about the word Celtic Good. because, of Come course, on. these are Anglo-Saxons, and Anglo-Saxon is not Celtic. Right. But uh, we do, of course, accept that Aidan and his Irish monks from Iona would have brought here a, a number of ways of thinking about the Christian faith and life, which was special, specifically Irish, and they, of course, taught that to their people and that the monastery here would have been, as it were, a centre for Irish kind of Christianity for many years, yeah. um, I think. But in the end, of course, it did become wholly and purely English. Cuthbert was a Saxon monk, not a Celt. But the same close attention to nature and the same vivid descriptions of creation as being the gift of the Christian God that we now think of as characteristic of Celtic theology 
is equally apparent in stories about Cuthbert. For instance, here's one, another one from the Venerable Bede about how Cuthbert was fed by eagles on his journeys along the River Tweed. When I walked along the Tweed, I was hungry too, but I had to make do with hoping I'd find a store somewhere open among the villages that we passed. It happened also that on a certain day, Cuthbert was going forth from the monastery to preach, with one attendant only. And when they became tired with walking, though a great part of their journey still lay before them ere they could reach the village to which they were going, Cuthbert said to his follower, Where shall we stop to take refreshment? Or do you know anyone on the road to whom we may turn in? I was myself thinking on the same subject, said the boy for we have brought no provisions with us, and I know no one on the road who will entertain us, and we have a long journey still before us, which we cannot well accomplish without eating. The man of God replied, My son, learn to have faith, and trust in God, who will never suffer to perish with hunger those who trust in him. Then, looking up and seeing an eagle flying in the air, he said, Do you perceive that eagle yonder? It is possible for God to feed us even by means of that eagle. As they were thus discoursing, they came near a river. And behold, the eagle was standing on its bank. Look, said the man of God, there is our handmaid, the eagle that I spoke to you about. Run and see what provision God hath sent us and come again and tell me. The boy ran and found a good-sized fish, which the eagle had just caught. But the man of God reproved him. What have you done, my son? Why have you not given part to God's handmaid? Cut the fish in two pieces and give her one, as her service well deserves. He did as he was bidden and carried the other part with him on his journey. Um, I I just I'm feeling so sad that I haven't got more time on my camera with you. Uh, but tell me, uh, that I've just finished walking the St. Cuthbert Way. Can you say something about the the modern re- or the invention of this route, and what you think as an islander, as an academic? Well, uh, we have been experiencing a great growth in pilgrimage here on the island, particularly I think in the last fifty sixty years, and. Uh, a pilgrimage for people who come to the island is normally a kind of rediscovery of roots. They think that the early Christianity here, and after all, one of the names by which the island is known is the Cradle of Christianity in the northeast, and they think that it must have been a, 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 what one might call a, a really um, correctly basic and radical form of the Christian faith. In many cases, they are a little bit fed up with the paraphernalia that has gathered round a modern church. And they are looking, therefore, for an inspiration from people that they thought had a very, very um, uh, self-giving, very determined kind of approach to the Christian faith. Um, I, I I think the one word that I would use to describe Aidan and Cuthbert and that lot if I had to choose one word, would be the word wholehearted. Mm. And uh, so people who come on foot here 
are partly doing what all pilgrims have done, namely taking themselves out of their own environment, giving themselves a little bit of a physical challenge, um, and bringing themselves to a place which they know was once a place of a very kind of dedicated living and from which they think they might get inspiration. Um, and what do you think of that form of modern pilgrimage? Oh, I think, I think it's very good. Uh, um, most of the pilgrims that, we, that come on the pilgrim's way end up here, of course, naturally, and we talk to them, and almost always they will speak very positively about what they think they have got out of their, out of their journey. music you hear is a choir that was practicing in St. Mary's Church on Holy Island when I wandered by. There's a striking statue inside the church that, if you visit, you absolutely have to spend some time with. The statue is of a group of monks, carrying a casket on their shoulders, looking weary. It's a testament to the life that St. Cuthbert had after his life, so to speak. Poorly treated by the monks on Lindisfarne at first, Cuthbert's gracious and open manner eventually won over the others. Eventually, Cuthbert became the most famous inhabitant of the island. His memory became so important that two centuries later, when Viking raids finally made Holy Island uninhabitable, the monks of Lindisfarne wouldn't leave the saint behind. They dug up Cuthbert's body and began wandering all over the north with the casket. They carried Cuthbert here and there across the northeast, according to legend hiding in caves and in marshes, until eventually, led by the sign of a dun cow, they found a home for the saint and themselves at what is now the great cathedral of Durham. The monks also brought to Durham the priceless illustrated manuscript known as the Lindisfarne Gospels. Together with the Book of Kells, the Lindisfarne Gospels are one of the finest examples of insular illuminated, man illuminated manuscripts in the world. If you've never seen them, you need to have a look online. They're spectacular. The Gospels were produced by the monks on Holy Island. But Holy Island is famous for yet another book again, one that's a lot less photogenic than the Lindisfarne Gospels. In 2012, the oldest known European book in existence was purchased by the British Library. The small plain volume, hoary with age, cost the library nine million British pounds. Now what treasure could possibly be worth so much? It turns out, that what they had paid for was an unadorned copy, in Latin, of the Gospel of John. The thin, dark little book, which you can still see if you go to London, is a small volume that had been placed into the saint's tomb when he was buried almost a millennium and a half ago in 687. Taken straight from Cuthbert's dead hands, the devotional booklet almost certainly must have been his favorite. creation um, that we, has sometimes been forgotten in modern Christianity, uh, this uh, reappropriation of, of God's uh, place in creation. Do you, do you want to say anything about that? Well, I, I, I say that I think that it is perfectly true that the place of nature has sometimes been forgotten in modern theology and modern way of living. Um, I haven't, however, found any particular uh, um, kind of emphasis on that. 
within what I've read about the Irish type of Christianity. Um, because they were all farmers. I mean, nature was what they lived in. They, it is modern city dwellers who have made a difference between uh, life and nature. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just ran out of time, and I, uh, it breaks my heart. Uh, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but I'm really thankful for the, the 10 minutes that we got. Um, I will, I'll turn that off. Uh, but it's not because I don't have more questions to ask. Yeah. I want you to know yeah. that. When I first set out on my walk along St. Cuthbert's Way, I spotted on the far banks of the Tweed the destroyed walls of what was once Dryborough Abbey. Even though it was already a 24-kilometer day without any detours, I went off the path and crossed the river to have a look. In one of the ruined side chapels, I found a spot in the shade where I could pull out my lunch and rest for a bit. As it turned out, I'd happened on the grave marker for Sir Walter Scott, who is buried in that abbey. Later, when I got to the end of the trail, I found that I was living out a stanza of Scott's poem called Marmion. Scott knew what it was to be a pilgrim, and he knew that land of the borders really well. Here's how he describes what I was doing, sloshing in my bare feet across the pools and sands toward Holy Island. Scott writes, The tide did now its floodmark gain and girdled in the saint's domain. For with the flow and ebb, Lindisfarne's style varies from continent to isle. Dryshod, or sands, twice every day, the pilgrims to the shrine find way. Twice every day, the waves efface of staves and sandaled feet the trace. A hundred kilometers after starting out on my own wanderings, I walked barefoot across the ocean floor to Holy Island. I could not have imagined a more perfect ending to a pilgrimage. Much of pilgrimage is about being between states, and here I was walking towards an island that is sometimes an island, sometimes not. The late afternoon sun was buttery yellow, turning everything pure gold. The sea was out, but there was enough water in the sand to squelch between my toes and remind me that I was walking a path only briefly there. <clears throat> My way, like the island, and like spiritual experience itself, was only a brief moment of openness. I experienced a revelation, and did so in my body. As I walked the two miles or so between mainland and island, along a line of poles designed to show the pilgrim path even at high tide, I began to hear a strange keening, a kind of haunting kind of singing sound I'd never heard before, but will always remember. It turned out to be a group of seals on the ocean rocks off to my right, the kinds of creatures Cuthbert apparently loved and who dried his feet, welcoming me also to the island of the ancient saint. There's two lots, isn't there? I was told by my friends who spent some time here that they heard singing seals. Seals that, that sort of sing, and that's uh -huh. what that is.
You can hear the rain round here when it's been like a false 10 gale and you can hardly stand up. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it's Bamborough Castle that you can Bamborough. see up there. Yeah. So you get singing seals and a view of a castle. Oh, there they go. If you haven't already, I hope you have the chance one of these days also to walk the St. Cuthbert's Way. It's really worth the effort. If you do, first take a look at www.stcuthbertsway.info where you'll find lots of useful information and links to further sites. Travelers to Holy Island should time their stays so that you're on the island during one of the high tide times when the swell of tourists is out. You'll find Cuthbert's Isle a very different place during high tide than at low. Right now, during the pandemic, the island, which normally takes in so many tourists, finds that its hotels, cafes, and B&Bs are all struggling. In response, one initiative Lindisfarne folks have taken is to start their own podcast. It's called Holy Island Radio, and it features interviews with the locals and great local color. If you're one of those people who'd like to see Holy Island someday, but, like me, can't get there just right now, have a listen at holyislandradio.uk. All one word, Holy Island Radio. They also sell an interactive map of the, of the small island with photos and sound bites for a virtual pilgrimage arrival. If you do get to Holy Island, make sure to stop in at St. Mary's Church and see the statue that I was talking about and end your pilgrimage, if you can, also in Durham. Once you've walked that 63 miles or 100 kilometers, go to Durham also and take a look at St. Cuthbert's Shrine, which is opposite the cathedral from the Venerable Bede's Shrine. Now, to take us out for this podcast, we'll have a little bit more from Kate Tristram. And do you think St. Cuthbert walked the original St. Cuthbert way? <laughs> Tell me what you think. Well, I've had a rather mischievous thought about this. You see, after all, his monastery at Melrose was not the modern Melrose. It was along the river a little bit, and it was absolutely on the banks of the river. Now, since people in those days were good at boats, <laughs> they would certainly have had a boat and gone up and down the river, and I think that he would have chosen an outgoing tide, got into his boat at Melrose, <laughs> and found that the tide helped enormously to carry him down to the river's mouth at, uh, at, Tweed, at uh, the mouth of the river Tweed, and then the tide would naturally have turned him right, <laughs> and he would have ended up at Lindisfarne. <laughs> so you mean he didn't necessarily have to struggle those full hundred kilometers that I just went through? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we really don't know. I think since he was, of course, a very missionary-minded man, I think he would often have walked on purpose to encounter people and to see whether he could encounter people who hadn't yet heard anything about the Christian faith. I think he would probably have used his missionary journeys to do that. But it's rather a nice thought yes. that one day he might have needed to go to Lindisfarne and thought, I'll just get in my boat. <laughs> I hope to see you again for another episode of Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down My Staircase. Thank you to uh, James Anderson for his incomparable uh, harmonica stylings and the theme music for this podcast series. Thanks to Gabriel Morehouse Anderson for helping me out in guitar and to Sarah Parks for some of the voice work today. See you next time. Yeah.